welcome to the Less Doing Podcast, where you will learn how to start living more by doing less. Let me help you optimize, automate, and outsource your entire life so you can focus on doing the things you love. Now here's your host, Ari Mizell. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Less Doing Podcast. My name is Ari Mizell, and I'm your host, as usual. And today, my guest is Dr. Doug Brackman, who is the author of a book called Driven, and a psychologist and a meditation leader and a very, very interesting guy. And I'm, I met him in person for the first time a couple weeks ago at the Black Belt coaching event run by Talking More. And I'm... I'd read his book and I'm I'm really excited to talk about a whole bunch of things psychology related and we're going to talk about shooting and all sorts of cool stuff. So Doug, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me. Hey, thank you Ari. It's a pleasure to meet you a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, this is uh in fact I have to admit, you know, I just discovered <laughs> your podcast after meeting you and I've been addicted. We are kindred spirits it seems. I think so. And and well so again again, thank you. So but I want to get into your background, but I actually want to go into a question right off the top. So you, I mean, you are a psychologist, you've done work in a lot of different areas, but one of the ones that stands out to me is the, the your work in self-sabotage. Ah, oh. <laughs> that is, that was my dissertation topic, actually, self-sabotage or self-fulfilling prophecy, as it's called. Yeah. And so I, I, I want to... I mean, I, I want to talk about your background as we would normally do in any interview, but I really want to get to this right away. So uh, it's, it's become particularly fascinating to me over the last few months, not only uh, on a business level, but in personal stuff. And I've seen uh, friends and, and colleagues do things that to me seemed like self-sabotage. And, I, you know, it's people where things are going well, like they don't need to, they, there's no reason to be doing this, right? So like wh- what... Why does this happen? <laughs> so it's um, so I did my dissertation back, really started in the mid '90s, and it's an amazing time to be a psychologist, just because of this functional MRI, and we can now actually see what's going on. But uh, very simply, human beings are not wired for safety; we're wired for the familiar, and so you know the, the part of the brain and body that actually is drawn into a familiar environment is <laughs> directly opposed to the new brain or the neocortex. So there's really two of us in there. And one of which is, um, you know, genetically wired for, you know, for what we were born into, you know, and so I come from a whole bunch of different fields of study and cultural anthropology is one of them. And human beings, you know, 120,000 years of development, we uh, basically created a world with our neocortex that our, our genetic system fit into. So, you know, the part of us, the self that wants the familiar versus the new brain that can imagine all kinds of amazing worlds are at odds. And so there's always part of us that is seeking the familiar. And that's the, the classic example is that's why January is just horrible at the gym because everybody's, you know, their, their new brain or their monkey mind is just, you know, convinced them that this time it's going to be different. 
and then come February, March, April, May, <laughs> the body basically, or the reptilian brain says, you know, I've had enough. And so you just start to feel resistance to going to the gym. And then if you have the monkey mind up there <laughs> rationalizing or justifying or, you know, and, and there's always another big gorilla with a big stick trying to beat you to go, but it, it's these two different senses of self that are opposed to each other. And most psychologists hate to admit it, but it's really the, the reptilian brain that is in charge of our life. And so that, that ability to overcome it or push through it, you know, and all my work with the Navy SEALs and these guys that are able to push through a whole bunch of stuff they don't want to do is not necessarily a good thing. And so it, it creates a, you know, eventual, you know, body that will not be able to handle. That's why these guys completely get addicted to going into inten incredibly intense, dangerous worlds because it's what's familiar to them. And so when they come back, it, it you know, the adjustment period is what we call post-traumatic stress. And so there's a really two different people in here that are controlling us. And the one that is unconscious or subconscious or pre-conscious, whatever you want to call it, it's the one that's really in charge. Well, is there a way for people to decide what's going to be familiar to them? Um, and so that <laughs> the decision process of, uh, or habituate, I guess, you know, it, it, you know, well, I say it all the time is that human beings are in a constant state of change and we're always adapting and, you know, we're, we're in a constant state of change, working our ass off at staying the same. And so all the work I do in efficiency and getting people to, you know, not sabotage is just, you know, that, and I hate the buzzword mindfulness, but it's really bodyfulness to feel that impulsive, you know, reptilian machine down below our nose, constantly trying to make these unconscious or, you know, decisions for us. And then you have another part of the brain that seems so conscious, um, you know, which one is actually deciding to do it. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very interesting, you know, it gets really deep really quick. So, you know, if you ask, you know, who's making the decision to go to the gym, it, it's, you know, there's part of you that's always going to resist. And there's another part of you that's trying to cheerlead or get on. And that, that's the core of that book I wrote is really trying to get people to get into this curious mindset about, you know, who's really in charge of my life. So how do you, how do you start that process? And, and then also, of course, like, as you said, with Navy SEALs, you, they need to be able to do that and over and push through things that they don't want to do. So where is the, where's the balance? How does a normal person sort of train that or harness it, I guess? So, yeah, it very simply, um, you know, and I laid it out in the book is it, it's, uh, you know, I use the very old metaphor that the Buddha came up, up with, you know, 2,500, 2,600 years ago that, you know, human beings are very much like an Indian elephant kind of lumbering along with a whole bunch of monkeys up on top of this elephant with these little elephant hooks with the sticks trying to beat the elephant into submission to go do this and don't do that. And, um, you know, and the, the Buddha observed very quickly that, you know, who's really in charge of us. And, you know, when it comes to most addictions, sex and, you know, food and actually Indian elephants are a great, great example of that. If you ever give an Indian elephant, you know, sugar cane, sometimes you actually have to put them down to keep them from charging, you know, 
into sugarcane fields, no matter who's on top of it, no matter how big your stick is, you just can't stop them. And so it's a very interesting kind of a philosophy, you know, that starts out of that. But the, the classic Buddha question is, which one are you? Are you the monkeys up on top of this elephant or are you the elephant itself? And it's a <laughs> old Zen question, you know, are you the monkeys or the elephant? Does it, and, does it matter? <laughs> it's, well, it's a trick question because the answer is obviously both. Right. But neither at the same time. And raw consciousness, this, this ability to observe the impulsive elephant, you know, feeling stuck to the couch at, you know, 530 in the morning when you're, you know, monkey mind and the gorillas in your head are trying to beat the elephant into submission to go that ability to, to listen and see both at the same time is this third element, you know, of raw consciousness and that raw consciousness then, and is able to actually not rationalize, not going nor convince yourself to go. And, you know, the massive takeaway from meditation and it is, you know, is that in the present moment, there is no resistance. There is no resistance in the elephant. And so you, you know, your efficiency model is just brilliant in that, you know, as you start to feel the resistance to these things, is if you integrate a mindfulness practice or a meditation practice, the resistance will actually melt away. And, you know, I don't want to go and feel what it's like to, you know, walk through the door of the gym at 530 in the morning. No matter how big the elephant, you know, resistance is, it's still resisting what is not happening right now. And so as you elicit that skill or expand your consciousness, um, you are actually building a really interesting part of the brain that allows for us to, to actually do anything we want to do. And it's a really powerful, simple tool, but it's a, <laughs> it's, it's a lifelong mastery practice very quick. Well, and so from your background in psychology, how did you get into meditation? Um, like everyone else, I was absolutely miserable <laughs> and I was, it kind of ran out of every option. Um, interesting story. You know, I didn't start out, well, kind of two major transitions in my life. First of which, when I was 18, 19, um, you know, found myself as a high school dropout living in a car and completely blew up my life or so it seemed. But this bless her heart woman came and banged on the back window of this car. I sleep in and it says, you know, screaming at me, you can't sleep here. But in that moment I had that conscious awakening, realizing that I wasn't, you know, the person that she actually saw, you know, and I started to question who was I, that was kind of the start of it. And then 15, 18 years later, I found myself at 31 years old going through a divorce, you know, basically coming through a dissertation, basically abandoned my wife for two years and at the same time broke my leg. And so I was a complete exercise addict. The only thing I was doing to, to, you know, I was doing Ironmans at the time triathlon and was teaching psych 101 or psych 100 or whatever it was in a graduate level and my TA or my, I was TAing for my dissertation chair. And he looked at me and just said, dude, you are going to kill yourself if you don't figure something out. Um, 
and you know the good kind of addictive personality that I was, I just went and blindly signed up for a ten day meditation retreat. Never had meditated in my life before, and walked into this SN Goinka, you know, ten day. Let's figure this out, and I was hooked. And that was you know about no, that was fifteen, eighteen years ago now. Um, and so I was just miserable at my you know wits end, and had to figure something out, and it it, it clicked. And since then, it's just been an amazing time to be a psychologist because you're, you know, the, the wave of mindfulness study and everything that's actually happening in the brain when we meditate has been just my absolute passion. And then how did you start working with Navy SEALs and people of that ilk? So, you know, when I first started in the field of psychology, I was basically a recovering drug addict. And started working in this 32 years ago, working in rehabs. And in 1991, um, amazing article came out in uh, Time magazine. You know, we found the alcoholism gene. And they just really started getting into the human genome. And they cracked the, the dopamine receptor sites, you know, associated strongly, highly correlated with, uh, with alcoholism. Two, three, four years later, they start really looking into this thing. And it's like, well, it's not just alcoholism. It's eating disorders, gambling addictions. It's any type of personality and stress. And, um, and since that time, I've just been on the forefront of really understanding the genetic underpinnings of what makes the, you know, about 10% of the population significantly different than <laughs> the rest. Um, and... Navy SEALs, entrepreneurs, professional athletes is kind of where I landed in, in just working with this type of personality. In the last 10, 15 years, it's almost exclusively with this type of personality. So wound up working with um, one of my good buddies who uh, was a Navy SEAL, retired Navy SEAL, and we'd shot a bunch together and did martial arts together for a long time and pitched this idea to him, hey, you know, help me write this book and really look at this personality type from a, from a cool guy perspective. And, you know, I've been in the mindfulness world for 15 years and the, the hippy dippy, you know, huggy stuff is, is less palatable to me. And so I really wanted to pair up with somebody who was going to differentiate from that. And I got knee deep in working with the Navy SEALs and, um, getting these guys to meditate and they're like, Whoa, wait a minute. This is not what I thought meditation was and their efficiency and their, their shooting and everything else starts to go through the roof. And, and, you know, once you're in, in that crowd, it seems that, you know, once they find something that works, they'll jump all over it. So they kind of adopted me into their, into their world for, for a while. I've kind of slid out of it now that I'm into more entrepreneurs, but, um, it's really that personality type, type A driven nutcases that we all are. Well, and so you said there's about 10% of the population and that, those are the people who are, you're saying are exceedingly driven or something. So what, what the book is about, what I wrote this book about was building up the research of this guy named Tom Hartman, who's a radio talk show guy now on, on Russia television, believe it or not. But he, he had a, an ADD, ADHD kid that was being severely pathologized by the school system and, you know, making him feel like he's broken and wanted to give him meds and wanted to, you know, be, you know, just wrap him up into the pathology world. 
and he started to get into the genetics and looking at the the underpinnings of this this was mid 90s you know before all the research really came out and he theorized that you know about 90% of the population adapted over the last 3 4000 years to the agricultural world and so his theory and you know my book builds on his stuff really getting into the science behind it but about you know 4 or 5000 years ago the world took a drastic turn to incredible safety compared to what it normally is <laughs> you know for the last 120000 years we've been on this planet it's been a really hard place to live and so 4000 years ago what happened was you know somebody and a whole bunch of people figured out that it's a lot easier to sit in one place and grow a bunch of food wait for it to grow and then eat it <laughs> and that that sedentary simple world that most of the human population and most of the the stats are somewhere between 12% and 10% um really have not adapted to that world meaning that you know we're hunters and in the intervening 5 8 10 years since you know this initial kind of research came out the functional mri and then the the genetics under it just give incredible support you know that that about 10% of the population really do have a different brain structure different genetic underpinning different reward system and different personality type that are adapted to a to a just basically scarier world and now in the last three years, they're watching how genetics are actually turned on and off and epigenetically based on trauma. So you have a transgenerational transmission of this personality type. And it makes sense that, you know, it's hard to argue that if your mother's mother's mother had a really hard pregnancy and you were born into, you know, a terrible circumstance, that your genetics would adapt or at least some of the offspring would adapt and then be carried on and you know the, the research coming out of the holocaust survivors is incredible you have you know 80 90 likelihood that you can just from blood samples alone predict whose grandparents were in the holocaust which is incredible and so you know we're just a bunch of animals in this <laughs> ability for us to adapt into a world that is not really going to change that much based on our genetics, you know, our transportation device for most of our existence, we're just feet. So we walk, you know, and so maybe, maybe a hundred miles from where you were born, you might wind up in a, in a somewhat different environment for most of our existence. But now it's, it's, you know, we're able to completely change our worlds almost overnight. And so our, you know, the, the monkey and the elephant, you know, the elephant is having a hell of a hard time adapting to how different our worlds can be almost overnight, you know, from the neocortex perspective. So you see this personality and it's incredibly resilient genetics. They just seem to keep cropping up and waiting for the next ice age to hit or, you know, the next disaster. And, you know, 10% of the populations are the ones that are the problem solvers and the chronically discontent always waiting for the next shoe to drop you know because it might where you know farmers need to be able to tolerate a very simple sedentary boring world um, and we don't 
Navy SEALs and entrepreneurs, <laughs> the clients that I have been working with almost exclusively, just we just don't adapt. It's just amazing to me that that entrepreneurs are like an evolutionary adapt adaptation and sort of the way you're saying it. And one of the things that I remember being a big discussion when I was at uh, Wharton, uh, which was 15 years ago, was it was always a debate about whether or not entrepreneurship could be taught or whether you were born with it. And from what you're saying, it sounds to me pretty much like you are you're you're predestined to be an entrepreneur or not. Well, it, it as Gary V says, you know, 20 years ago, if somebody says you're an entrepreneur, you know, it basically means you're unemployed and it, it's, it's a different brain structure. That's the easiest way to say it. You know, the hunter hunter's brain or the entrepreneurial mind, um, we are occipitally dominant, meaning that we're visually dominant and you put us in a functional MRI, the back of our heads light up when we are asked to, you know, see stimuli. But for the driven brain or this, this hunter's brain, what happens is, is the occipital lobe is dominant, but the frontal lobe is not dominant, is hypoactive or underactive. And that's the defining feature of attention deficit disorder, attention, you know, ADD and ADHD. But what that does is allows the frontal brain to carry 7, 10, 12 different thoughts at the same time. So the entrepreneurial mind is we are, we are multi-thinkers and, you know, we, we need to see the big picture. And once we see the big picture, then we can draw these unique kind of creative ways to solve problems. Um, and so not that <laughs> that combined with the inability, it's like, I always laugh about, you know, I'm basically unemployable. You look at my resume and it's, a, it's, you know, or most 99% of my clients resumes every 18 months or so they're on to a new venture. They're onto something new. And, you know, we're, we're very, very independent people. And so I, I really can't have a boss, you know, cause a boss tells me how to do something my mind and my frontal lobe immediately starts to think about a better way to solve that problem. And if I'm forced to do it their way, I, I'll roll my eyes and, you know, seem condescending. It's like, why don't we do it this way? And so it's a, it's a personality mismatch for, you know, a, a, a boss that's telling you how to grow field, how to, how to plant the field where immediately we are coming up with a better way to do it. Yeah. So I, <laughs> When I was uh, 18, I think, so it was my first year of college, uh, I got an internship that summer with Freddie Mac, which is, it's, it's about as corporate as it gets, right? Or as, well, as corporate slash governmental as it gets, uh, completely opposite of anything that I could possibly see myself doing. But I was working in real estate, uh, or I was studying real estate, and I got this internship. And I show up the first day, and I meet my six bosses. <laughs> Uh, they tell me that the next day they're all going to a conference for the next like week or something. Oh no, it was, yeah, it was like a week. And all of them gave me assignments to work on while they were gone. And I finished everything by the end of the first day. And so the rest of the week was just like, just sort of messing around doing nothing and not learning and not. And then a week later, I basically made up an excuse and I quit. <laughs> Um, and I've done, I mean, I haven't done that, but I've worked for, I don't know, 12 different companies for various different stints. And 
until finally accepting that it's just not my thing to be an employee. And it's funny how the, how the symptoms of ADD are like, so I, I've seen really funny presentations like Cameron Harold has done this where he's met, he's listed all the symptoms of ADD and it's like, these are actually the symptoms of entrepreneurs. So how, how much, you know, how much do you fight it? How much do you hone it and like target it? And also I know I'm like rambling here, but the other thing that this keeps making me think of is, and I, and I think I told you this when we were in person, but when I was younger for, for a significant portion of my teenage years, I really wanted to, uh, end up training to be a Marine sniper, Marine oh. recon sniper. So I was, when I was young and really young, I mean, I think I was probably 10 or nine or 10 when I started, uh, target practice i was a really good shot by the time i was like 11 or 12 and it was just something that was really fascinating to me and i always found it very um if i say meditative now that that's almost like i'm just piggybacking what you said before but that's kind of what it felt like in, in, in certain situations and it was always something where i could you know do a little bit better and so i really wanted to do that and uh, i read all these books about it and it always made me think about I, I always try to think about what it would be like if I actually was in a situation or in wartime or something where there was a mass amount of stress. And thankfully, I've never been in that situation. But the the idea of it never, never sort of like dissuaded me. Yeah, it's it, it's and I you know my book is a really exploration of the sense of self and you know the constellation of the self. What am I? Um, you know, I am a hunter and our brain structure and our personality structure and the, these re, basically a reward deficiency part of the brain. We have a reward deficiency syndrome. We are constantly drawn into circumstances that really capitalize on, on our, on our brain, on our, on, on the opportunity for dopamine, all of these things. Um, and those kind of circumstances that, that demand all of our structures to come together at the, you know, kind of the peak performance is what we are designed to be, you know, and, and, the, you know, professional golfers, the guys I work with in the PGA tour that, you know, just can't imagine a different world where they're, you know, they're in a constant state of high risk. And they're in a constant state of, of peak performance. They're in a constant state of really finding out, you know, what, what is the ultimate, you know, kind of experience in, in building a skill. And that is a perfect, you know, opportunity to really hone, as you say, or harness these hunter skills. And the entrepreneurs are the same. It, it's a, you know, multi-thinking, high-risk driven um, world that we are, you know, where we really shine, but that's mostly our brain structure. And so you want to talk about self-sabotage, um, you know, these guys, you know, the 20 something late 20 something, you know, that are making a million bucks a year, 5 million bucks a year off the internet, just absolutely blow up and coming out of my dissertation uh, that, that, you know, lottery winners are probably the best example of this, that, you know, they find themselves almost overnight in a world that, you know, is flush with money, <laughs> but their reptilian brain or reptilian body is just absolutely unable, unable to, uh, 
you know, feel that sense of safety in it. And, you know, that is real. And so what do they do? They set up a life, you know, very quickly to, you know, that they can't afford to sustain. Where you find, you know, that draw to the military that we have, you know, that creates an external structure. You know, you have basically a, a command and a, and, a, and a set of rules and a external way to really harness what we're lacking on the internal. And I work a lot in the Navy SEAL world that, you know, when these guys get out, their, their worlds just blow up because they don't have that external structure. So in my book, I, you know, pose that as a, as a way of, of really harnessing what we are, that you need both. You need to embrace our hunter qualities, but then you must put into place a way of reality checking. Um, what is reality? Reality is outside of our inner world and that, that ability to, to have a routine, you know, that, that is so appealing to a lot of us in the military. But when we get out and we don't have that, or, you know, if we don't have that on our own, we, we sabotage the hell out of our lives. But if it's imposed too strongly by others, you know, bosses or whatever else, we quit. So it's, it's a very, it's a very uh, slippery slope when it's, you know, if it's imposed by others, it's no good. But if it's imposed by us and we gently come back to it, it, it seems to work. So is that one of the things that you guide people in doing in terms of their own optimized operations is to be able to have those kinds of structures in place that that are congruent with the way that they want to get things done. Exactly. Yeah. And it, and now very simply, you just set a routine, you know, and I start everybody and I'll come back full circle to your shooting thing or your interest in shooting. And yes, it's one of the greatest meditation tools I've ever found, but you set a very simple routine, you know, and I, I get everybody started at one minute of meditation in the morning um, somewhere between, you know, going to the bathroom, having a cup of coffee and, you know, before you get started for the day, you put a meditation, a one minute meditation in there. And the most important piece of that is, is feeling the resistance to doing it. And, you know, oh, it's just a minute, you know, you hear your monkey mind chattering at you. It's just a minute, no big deal. Don't need to do it. And the elephants are actually feeling that resistance too that's the moment that you need to start that meditation practice and building the part of the brain that allows you then to build that routine into everything you do. And, you know, I, I listened to some of your David Allen podcast and you, I'm a big fan of David Allen, but it, it's very simple to then build a routine around, you know, returning emails or, you know, whatever else you got going on on a consistent basis, but then feeling the resistance to doing it bringing in a mindfulness practice or a meditation practice into that activity too. Your efficiency just goes through the roof. It's crazy how much stuff you can get done. Um, and it, it's just gently coming back to the routine. But if you don't have any kind of guardrails or idea of what you're supposed to be doing, you have, you know, this, this wandering kind of attention span that immediately jumps onto the next shiny thing. And we, we go spinning off into inefficiency. No, and now, I mean, I, I'm I'm curious about this with people in Navy SEALs, particularly, I guess, and other special forces. And I may be completely misinterpreting research that I've seen before, but uh, is is it a thing that 
these highly specialized forces like Navy SEALs, like Delta, like uh, Green Berets, that they experience less percent, I guess, less uh, incidences of PTSD than, I guess, general infantry or just sort of enlisted people? Well, it, it's, yeah, I'm very, I'm on, on the front line of all that research. Um, it is a tough, <laughs> it, how to define post-traumatic stress versus post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, what is it a disorder? And I've had, you know, a lot of Navy SEALs and a lot of these high-end guys, it's a career render and it's primarily around, you know, the, the misunderstanding of what it is. Um, it, Everyone on the planet has post-traumatic stress. And, you know, some people are afraid of dogs. And, you know, why? Because, you know, their early experiences with dogs taught them that dogs were scary. And it's, is it a disorder or not? Well, it's not a disorder if you live in a world with very few dogs in it. <laughs> if you start dating somebody and they have a dog, yeah, it becomes a disorder quick. And so does it really get in the way of your life? But most of the guys where, you know, the, the, the rapid return, so you're in a, in a world in Afghanistan or whatever, where you're getting shot at all the time, which is incredibly addictive. It's one of the greatest highs you can have. You come back to this sedentary, boring world and literally the reptilian body doesn't know how to adjust itself as quickly as it, as it should or could. So what I do is teach guys how to allow that, you know, basically the reptilian body to adjust to reality much quicker. Um, they naturally have to do that. And the training that they go through, and it's incredibly self-selective or, you know, self-selective in that even to want to be a Navy SEAL, you know, you have to um, be pretty willing to be thrown into a bunch of different environments very quickly. And so most of the people that would have post-traumatic stress or don't adjust to that as well, they're going to fall out. And so it's, it's an interesting spin on the research, but it, it, um, yeah, these guys are, are, are unique in a lot of different ways. And that the ability to adjust to the environments is something that I have adapted from them, learned a ton about, you know, how to do that from them. So something I do incorporate. And when you're working with entrepreneurs more, are you like, what are you often focusing on? I mean, I know it's got to be different with every kind of person, but I know that with my friends who are founders or entrepreneurs, you see people who are clearly dealing with insecurity issues and their like self-worth is wrapped up in how, you know, how, how much they can sell their company for. And then they just, they just burn and burn and burn the midnight oil until they burn out or they make it. Uh, and then you have other ones who, are trying to have some sort of impact or something, but there's still there's there's still something that like pushes there, right? And I, in me, I always felt like it was just it was a matter of discipline, but um, I can't stop myself from coming up with new ideas and thoughts all the time. Um, and it's one of the things that I've embraced. I don't I don't. It's not meditation. I, well, maybe it's meditation, but when I I embrace boredom, that's one of the things that I tell people a lot now is that it's so hard to be bored in the current world because, you know, we always have information available to us and devices and things. There's just always something that starts to stimulate your brain. And if you force boredom, uh, really interesting ideas come out. So 
it, it, it sounds counterintuitive, but a lot of time I have, I have four young children, five, four, four, and one. Oh and, boy. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm not ashamed to say this, but a lot of times there's things that you do with children that age that are boring <laughs> and they're, it's boring. You know, it's, it's just a limit to how much you can uh, get into pushing a kid on the swing or playing with Legos, you know, although I actually, I happen to like Legos quite a bit, but um, those are the situations where if I don't have a device near me, which I try not to in those situations, I can usually focus, but like ideas just start coming out and start happening. So I try not to fight that. Well, it's, you know, the two reward centers in the brain that really differentiate the hunter's mind from the, from the farmers, you know, the dopamine receptor number two is the boredom gene and that genetic, you know, you're sitting there (laughs) playing, you know, patty cake with your kid um, and I have two girls. And so it's, it's, you want to talk about boring. I mean, some of the, how much American girl doll can you do <laughs> that ability? For, I'm not kidding you. It's like, wow. I, I get it. Uh, but it, 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 you know, what is boredom is boredom is this, you know, immediate, it's basically your elephant or your reptilian brain lying to you. You know, it's a sensation in the body that there's something missing or wrong or, or, you know, this kind of, di- very slow to incredibly intolerable buzz that happens in the body in the elephant that is, is basically a lie. You know, it's telling you that there's something missing or wrong right now. And, you know, from the hunter perspective, you know, if, if we are sitting in a cave and it's, you know, we get bored, we are much more likely to go out and, you know, hunt for food or, or, you know, feel this need to go survive where if the farmer felt that boredom, you know, while they're picking bugs off a, you know, ear of corn, they would starve and die. And so boredom is one of the the core differences in, in our personality type, but boredom is a lie. It's a wonderful opportunity to reality check that there is, you know, nothing missing or wrong right now. Um, and you mentioned, you know, that, that feeling of insecurity and, and that sense of shame that so common in entrepreneurs and believe it or not, Navy SEALs and, you know, basically all high performers. But it, it, what happens is that sense of boredom, that there's something missing or wrong gets folded into your identity. And there's, that was the core of my dissertation. There's something, you know, missing or wrong with me. And, you know, how do I know that's real is because I'm always feeling this kind of achy, chronic discontent. And, you know, it's our genetics talking. Um, And so we are, you know, if we're not blown off into our addictions trying to compensate for these feelings, we wind up, you know, accumulating so much of the world's wealth. And, you know, the other gene, that dopamine receptor number four, it's actually a much more interesting gene because it seems to be so much more subtle but I call it, it's the FOMO gene, fear of missing out gene. And so you have this inner feeling that the grass is always greener over the next hill. And from a hunter perspective, you know, if we felt that, you know, right here is fine, we would kill everything here and, you know, starve. And so we're always feeling like the, you know, the next woolly mammoth is over the next hill, you know, but there's one right here. Yeah, but there might be five over the next hill. So we're always, you know, chasing shiny stuff on the horizon. 
And so it, it's that feeling <laughs> gets folded into the identity. And then, you know, there's always something missing or wrong with me. And there always will be, you know, it's, as I say in my book, 25 different times, 25 different ways, you know, better has no finish line. And we feel like, you know, I've come across the finish line of an Ironman and it's like, wow, that's an amazing experience. And then, you know, three seconds later, I turn around and look at the clock and immediately my dopamine receptor sites start to fill in the blank saying that, you know, I could have done better. And so it, it's this, you know, we suffer from a, a horrible malady of, you know, I'm not good enough or another way to say that, you know, which is an incredible gift that better has no finish line. I'm always constantly striving to be better. Yeah. But isn't that, isn't that self-sabotage in itself though, right? Because then you can never be happy. So that is exactly what I get into in my book is that, you know, if you're always screwing up, another way of saying that is I can always be better. You can't have sabotage without better. And so you are in a constant state of self-sabotage. Another way of saying that is I'm in a constant state of learning. And it is a mindset shift that is in, once you get that, and that's what I'm trying to pitch in my book is that it, it's, it is, this is a incredible gift that I have you know, two PhDs and I'm walking out of my dissertation defense <laughs> and, you know, they shake my hands and, you know, congratulations, Dr. Brackman. And, you know, my head, my monkey mind says, ha ha, they bought it. And it's <laughs> the core of the imposter syndrome and everything else. But the reality was it was good enough. It was good enough. I got the freaking thing hanging on my wall. So, and yes, I could have done better, but I didn't need to, it was good enough. And so that, that logical understanding that I, that I pitch in my book that a, I'm a monkey or an animal B, you know, I'm a different kind of animal. I'm a hunter and I have this weird twist of genetic fate that I feel like I can always be better at something. And I'm, you know, I don't quit. <laughs> I will die trying. Um, we have incredible resilience. We get over stuff quick, you know, 9,999 different ways to not make a light bulb, you know, damn it. I'm going to keep trying until I do. Um, but it, it is a massive gift when I actually start to feel in my body that I am safe and I'm okay. You know, I'm okay. I'm okay, but I can always do better. And those are two different statements. You know, I break that link between them and that then your efficiency and you, you know, build a routine around your world and you're always trying to optimize the routine because I'm always willing to look at how I could have done better at it. Um, God, I, you know, some of the guys I've worked with just turn into unbelievable superstars because they're, they're not afraid to look at their mistakes and they're, they're, they're really good at wiring, you know, our wiring is prone to that. And so we're, it's a, but you need the logical understanding to get out of the, you know, ha ha, they bought it. I'm still, I'm still not good enough mentality. So you, you know, as I say in my book, you really do have to kill the self. You have to kill oneself. And then you, rather than who I am, you become what I am and what I am as a hunter and what I am is somebody who's optimizing this routine of my life. So one of the things that this makes me think of, which I, I, I just, I know that you're familiar with the concept is the idea of non-attachment. Oh yeah. So this is something that, so I, I'm, I have plenty of 
psych, I mean, I have plenty of issues and I've been uh, very defensive over certain things before something I've worked on very hard on and, and looking at failure. And, uh, I've certainly experienced failure at times in my life, but the idea of non-attachment is something that's always been interesting to me because it's always been part of me. Um, no matter what it was, if I spent a long time building something, and I was in real estate for a long time, so I've built a lot of things. But even like as a child, like I could, I could j- just break it when I'm done, or walk away from it. It didn't matter. And even most recently, I spent two years building up a company with a partner, and I walked away from it after about two months ago. And it's, it, 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 and it's also it's been the most exciting eight weeks of my life, pretty much. But at the same time people keep asking me like, well, you spent all this time, all this, you know, energy building this. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And now I'm doing something else. Um, and I, and I mean that it's not like an act. No, it's, it's, and I got in, I touched on it in the book, you know, and I, I pulled so much psycho babble and Buddha babble and bio babble out of that book as I could. But, um, this neuropeptide Y, which is, you know, it's actually one of the things they're starting to use to predict who can make it through the Navy SEALs, you know, BUDS training. And what it does, it allows this hunter brain, and we have massive amounts of it compared to, you know, farmers. It allows the, the hunter brain to basically say over it, you know, and I, you know, if you go through my garage and I'm a scuba dive master, I have my dive masters and I'm an Ironman triathlete, I'm a you know, national competition, long range shooting. And I've, you know, shot sporting clays and then I've, you know, got a family and I've got PhDs and I've got, but every one of those, you know, piles of things at one point I was just over it. And, you know, I've learned over the years not to throw away my stuff because eventually, Hey, that seems like a good idea again. And I'll get completely obsessed on it again. And so it's part of the, the hunter personality or this, you know, way we're wired and a byproduct of neuropeptide Y is, is our ability to hyper-focus. And that, that's, you know, what you mentioned about the shooting meditation. And that's what I've integrated, you know, long range shooting and, and Zazen styles of meditation is to really hack into this neuropeptide Y where, you know, you are just here. You're obviously attached to the rifle and then the rifle, and you can feel that pure attachment just to the target. And your focus becomes so incredibly narrow. And it's, you know, flow state. You know, I, and I, one of the things I posted on in the book is that, you know, the, the hunter brain and the hunter personality is really designed for flow to become in this, this incredibly minimally attached but hyperly attached to just one thing and it seems like the rest of the world falls away and it does (laughs) but i am here and i am attached to the gun and the gun is going to be attached to that target and it's a, a very blissful state and the monkey mind and the elephant body fall away that split that's between them and consciousness falls into it and being able to hack into that and then move back out of that state and then fall back into it is, is one of the things I'm really into as of the, you know, kind of my last two year obsession is really training people to do this because then you build a routine around what you're going to hyper focus on and then come out of that state and then 
fall back in and come out of that state and fall back in. And you can go through, you know, 200 emails or 300 emails after you've been gone for a week. Almost. I mean, it's just, you, you, you wind up just ripping and tearing through them efficiently and effectively, but you're not attached to anything else in the world. You're just attached to that one thing. And it's a gift that we have and also a curse because if you get hyper-focused on, you know, scuba diving when you got a wife and kids, man, <laughs> they, they get upset. So, you know, as I say in the book, balance is bullshit. But that ability for us to know that I'm out of balance because I've been hyper-focused on something else allows me to to move into these other other areas of my life. And I use the friends, family, fitness, finance, fun, you know, the F's category, which has been around for forever as a way of just reality checking, you know, where is my focus and where am I hyper-focused, over-focused and where am I under-focused and that ability to move through those states and really create the life that I want is, is our gift. If we're not fighting that, you know, constant state of boredom that we're in. Uh, so Doug, I, I mean, I wish I could talk to you about this for about four more hours, but I want to be respectful of your time. And so <laughs> at this point, I just want to thank you very much for taking the time to share all this with us. And where can people find out more about you? I've got one place and it's Dr. Doug Brackman. So you know, it's, I've got one website and that's it. Perfect. I'm all there. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome, Ari. This has been fun. Thank you for joining us today on the Less Doing Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share with your friends. For more information about Ari and his groundbreaking methods, please visit us online at lessdoing.com and on social media at Ari Mizell. We'll see you next week.